Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's new culture podcast with me, Tom Gatti. And me, Kate Mossman. The arts and books pages of the NS have always been referred to as The Back Half, so we are continuing that glorious tradition into the digital age. And over the coming weeks, we'll be talking about music, film, books, television, theatre and anything else that crosses our desks. And this week, we're going to talk about the politics and culture of emojis, the new Foo Fighters album, Concrete and Gold, and we'll have the first in our series, The Noniversary. Now, Kate, we've been talking a lot about emojis recently, partly because we had a piece by the writer Sophie McBain in the magazine talking about the way that emojis have taken over our language. What did you pick up from the piece that you hadn't known before? Well, we commissioned this because we were talking across our desk the other day about the fact that, rather like the writer, when emojis came in, we were all terribly snobby about them. And we kind of thought they were the work of morons, you know. So if you're having a happy day, you send a happy face. And just sort of silently in the last six to eight months of my life, I don't know about yours, but these things have become like more than just a a function. It's more of like a, a hobby almost. And so we wanted a piece that actually looked at the changing use of emojis, which are now apparently used by 80% of the world. So that's more people than speak English use emojis. So in terms of like the cultural imperialism of our language, that is fading. But all emojis are decided by a board of people in Silicon Valley called the Unicode Emoji Board that consists of about 12 members. And that's what you get from this article. I know. I thought that was incredible. It's a kind of it just immediately conjured sort of James Bond spectre-like organization, shadowy international conglomerate. (laughs) And I suppose in a way they are really shaping the way we communicate because we only use what icons are available to us and they they decide. Yeah, and also the weirdest thing of all, I think it's a dozen members on the emoji board. You pay to be on it. You pay to have the voting rights to decide what actually goes through. So the final decisions on whether it's going to be like, I don't know, a pilot who's a woman or a pilot who's a man rest with these 12 folk. Most of them are blokes. Most of them are tech company owners in Silicon Valley. And then also randomly, representatives of the government of Oman and Tamil Nadu. (laughs) So maybe if you're denied membership of the UN, this is your next best shot. I don't know if Turkey is a member or not. Yeah, there was a a journalist last year who fought a campaign to get the dumpling into the emoji alphabet because she thought this represented more of an international food than chips even. But it's funny how slowly, I don't know, the multicultural aspect of emojis has been introduced. They were all yellow. Do you remember at the start, they looked like Simpsons characters. And now, of course, you can select your skin tones from about six or eight. But you still won't find a character with with curly hair on there. So even the black female characters have straightened hair and everything. Mm. So it's kind of, it gives you a little insight into this kind of very rigid set of uh, of rules that's coming from one place in the world. Well, I suppose they have to be like for like comparisons, don't they? And then 
probably the conversations go if you then give a dark skinned character curly hair, that's somehow imposing a racial stereotype on that emoji. Exactly. But I always thought the whole point of the yellow Simpsons-like skin tones was that they were sort of beyond race. Mm, yeah, neutrality. Yeah, so in a way, if they'd kept that, they wouldn't necessarily yeah. have to... They're just making things more complicated. So how did you... We had the same experience in that mm. you started using them. I mean, you love using them, and originally you wouldn't have touched them. So how do you use them? What function do they have in your texts with, say, your wife? Interestingly, for me, because I think the point in the piece is that emojis are really useful because they help clarify the way we're communicating right so when we communicate in purely text-based forms we don't have all the kind of facial expressions all those really important markers that help interpret tone so there's a couple of different ways i use them and i have fallen into that thing now of using them just to signal a joke i wouldn't do that with my wife because i'd hope she'd she'd know (laughs) but you know that's kind of the absolute most what do you send to signal a joke um i would signal maybe the i wouldn't really send the happy face i'd maybe send the sort of tense widened mouth toothy (laughs) face for some reason that kind of feels like humor to me but that's the thing that's nice about them is that they have become a lot more playful and flexible so my favorite ones are the ones that are actually really ambiguous in their nature so it's quite new but i really like the wind one yeah. Uh, because Which comes up if you put fart in as well. It does. I didn't realise that because I haven't texted fart for a while. But it can kind of connote exciting winds of change, you know, something exciting happening. It can be uh, tumbleweed, you know, dull tumbleweed. We tried it out just before and you put gust in and it came uh, up for And gust. it came up for that, yeah, yeah. And then the other one I really like is the blankest one, which is just a horizontal line and two little dots for eyes, no nose. Because again, it can be pathetic. Um, <laughs> it can just be a state of being nonplussed. I like the fact that they can actually, for something that's supposed to simplify everything, they can actually make you work a little bit harder yeah. in your communication. She covers that in the piece that it actually adds kind of a great level of emotional nuance to a form that originally was considered to be completely deadpan. And there's a funny point that if you're texting somebody who doesn't use emoji and you do, it's the equivalent of like dancing in front of them and then standing <laughs> completely still. You just feel really embarrassed, so you stop. I like the fact that I'm always just you know, discovering new ones I haven't seen before. Like the other day I discovered the hole. There's actually a hole that looks like a manhole. And I, th- I was thinking about the ways in which, you know, us terribly sophisticated people think we use these things. And maybe the, the fact was before that you always chose an emoji that just represented exactly what you were saying. And maybe now the thing is you choose something that has no connection whatsoever mm. with what you're saying. And that, for some reason, that sort of seems amusing to you. So you have a little laugh. The other thing that she mentions in the piece is really odd is that like Isis loved the green bird emoji. Yeah. And the lion. So yeah. that represents bravery. Yeah. And apparently the American alt-right really like the red pill. Yeah, they've taken on these kind of weird political connotations, but they're not universal. So another point she makes is that I forget which organization it is, but someone's hired their first emoji translator purely because, as you say, these things that are supposed to be universal have kind of radically different interpretations. So you get things like with kind of double entendre meanings like... Uh, the aubergine and the peach, which I didn't know, but apparently in the States, the peach is an ass. (laughs) The aubergine is perplexing because it wouldn't necessarily be the first vegetable choice for male genitalia. It wouldn't. And you also don't send it in place of male genitalia. (laughs) 
you send it if you're excited about something. So again, there's yeah, there's like a, a whole level of um, of understanding there, which is actually very complex and very nuanced. Which is that you know, if you're arranging bowling on your birthday and something, and everyone says, "I'm really looking forward to this," then you send like a row of six aubergines. But apparently, in when America, you say you, you mean I just you mean, mean yeah. <laughs> My favourite being the aubergine. But yeah, apparently in America, they don't use the aubergine in a double entendre context. Oh, I thought they were more likely to use it. No, less likely. Oh, less likely. Yeah, which which kind of makes sense on some level. Because in a late Google hole last night, I discovered that in a way that emoji have now escaped from behind the phone screen. And there was this feature film that came out in the summer, the emoji movie, which universally panned. And you've seen those cushions, you know, the cushions in the shape of the poop emoji or yeah. the smiley face emoji. Someone has actually made an aubergine emoji <gasps> sex toy. Oh, my God. It's true. That's really weird. It's true. One last question for you. Do your parents use them yet? Not the sex toys, the emoji. Uh, no. And I would never use them in communication with my parents. I don't think they'd know how to find them. I think they'd be confused by them. I think they'd think that I'd drawn a picture and scanned it in or was had sent a photo and it come up absolutely tiny on their phone yeah my mum does she's one of those expert silver surfers and my brother and I are often discussing how unnerving it is that we will get text messages that have the crying face or the scream one you know when it's pushing the sides of its face in to, to something that it wasn't necessarily that surprising to begin with but she'll send that so what would like, you use we've a cr- lost her mother <laughs> what would she use a crying face for well she does that kind of crying laughing one hmm. i just think she's kind of linked into the whole as she calls it ig instagram world <laughs> i don't think anyone else calls it ig <laughs> she's just like using them in the simplest sense which is you know what they intended them for in the first place wonderful So the Foo Fighters have released their ninth record, Concrete and Gold, it's called. There's a bit of a mythology about this album already. You may remember that Dave Grohl fell off stage and broke his leg in Sweden. Yes. Yeah, finished the tour heroically on a kind of Jesse J style throne and then went into seclusion to try and get away from music and heal himself. But of course, the muse came calling and he couldn't stop writing. And this is the result. And we've been listening to this in the office today. And what do you reckon? Well, this is the leg break that stopped him appearing at Glastonbury isn't it and so for me this was trailed by the Foo Fighters appearing at Glastonbury and mainly through heated arguments amongst my friends about who was the better frontman Tom York or Dave Grohl which is such a sort of (laughs) misplaced category error that it kind of it's not even worth going into here but I was really pleasantly surprised by this actually he's hired this producer Greg Kirsten Famous for working with Adele and who else? Lots of other Lily Allen, Sia. Yeah. yeah. And it immediately has a more interesting sound. The first thing you pick up is really, I suppose, how 60s it feels and particularly how influenced by the Beatles it feels. Sky is a neighborhood. 
It's really Abbey Roadish, isn't mm. it? Like there's one track on there called Happily Ever After, which sounds so much like Across the Universe, the Lennon song. There are harmonies that sound like the George Harrison one because what I thought was really funny about this is that he's chosen Greg Kirsten, but he claims not to have known about Greg Kirsten's producer work, but to have been interested in Greg's previous band, The Bird and the Bee. And it's like, yeah, it's it's a really long, heavy record. It feels like it's about an hour and 10 minutes. And it's much more sonically diverse than their previous ones there was the, the joke with the Foo Fighters was like oh I see the Foo Fighters have made their record again so maybe he's which just... was also the joke with Adele weirdly yes I, I see Adele's <laughs> done her song again so. <laughs> this is just what people say on but, Facebook but yeah. you do feel like records two to eight you know do blur into blur into one for me you know <laughs> the other weird thing about it is it's teeming with these special guests who are apparently some of the most famous musicians in the world but we haven't been told who any of them are apart from on the opening track a guy out of boys to men so maybe he was yeah. the one name that could be released yeah he's on the closer as well i think he's used as a vocal element which is then multi-tracked 40 times so they've got these big kind of choral wall of sound harmonies going on so he's actually on concrete and gold the title I think he track is, yeah he's, yeah, not on, the yeah, he's yeah. on the title track through a chance meeting with dave Grohl in the car park of the recording studio and then the other guest appearance that we know about is paul mccartney who drums on sunday rain which again has a very abbey i mean it feels more like come together or something like that um, this is a really weird thing at the moment. There's a, a few records that have come out recently by very famous people that have had these massive A-list guest stars, but the guest appearances are kind of blended into the songs. So if you didn't know they were there, you wouldn't hear them at all. It's like one harmony. And I, I don't really know why they're doing it, but presumably it's something about just an interesting way of plugging the record when it comes out. It's, you know, when records are released now, you want to be able to take over the internet for one day with people talking about them. So it, there's a bit of a kind of detective work here, like who could this be? You know, there's a, a really interesting jazz piano break at the end of Sunday Rain that could be mm. like Bud Powell or Thelonious Monk or something but we haven't been told any of these people so it's kind of strange Yeah, decision. why would you get Paul McCartney to drum on your track? You're not even seeking out the Beatles you know Just like <laughs> you can say he's on it and then you have to pay him as well so. Yeah <laughs> In this specific case, what it does is at least it puts that influence firmly on the sleeve of the record and says, you know, we're not trying to hide anything here. This is a, a Beatles-loving record. And in the interviews, Dave Grohl's gone on about how, whether it's the Blue Album or the Red Album, you know, one of the, those two Beatles' greatest hits given to him as a kid were his kind of gateway into songwriting. There's a little story that I liked about this as well, that he wrote a lot of it in an Airbnb, which is like such a weird idea. And I heard this about Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. For her memoir, she just like hired some Airbnb and went and wrote it. And it's this weird kind of thing that these rock stars are doing exactly the same as what we'll do. <laughs> just go, go away for a couple of days, you know, paying 25 quid a night to stay somewhere. Yeah, as if that's the key to getting the creative juices flowing. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe it is. But then he came back with the songs and then immediately decided that he needed a an Adele producer. <laughs> Just briefly, that that kind of Adele producer idea of unlocking kind of absolute hit-making potential, because Stormzy's recent record, it's a different guy, but it's another Adele producer, isn't it? Except he's much more 
bold and out there about saying I just want to be as big as Adele which I guess isn't a factor for the Foo Fighters because yeah. they probably already are and also what what Kirsten's done I mean or they've all done together is there's so much more air in this record than you'd usually yeah. hear the amazing thing about the Foo Fighters energy is that thrash which is so exciting like yeah. I was drinking a really strong coffee with it at my desk today and I thought I was levitating but there's a lot more space in it so it's still got the same sound and the same punch but it's just it's more melodic and it's just you know it's like someone's kind of taken a bicycle pump and just yeah, Stuck absolutely. You can hear all the parts beautifully, even at, even at its most kind of strenuous. And now for our first non-aversary. Very excitingly, Kate has brought the first non-aversary to the studio this week. And approximately 19 years ago, saw the release of the critically panned and quickly forgotten film Urban Legends, which was a teen slasher film director irrelevant two sequels one of them straight to video this film starred faces of the 90s jared leto and joshua jackson and it was a film about the urban legends that you hear at school in the playground and it was a horror that managed to encompass them all in one film so the classic one for me that we had growing up was the you know you stop on the side of the road to pick up an old lady who's apparently lost her way home and the old lady turns out to be an axe murderer And there's another one which they managed to get into the movie, which is if you drink Pepsi and take a mouthful of popping candy, then your head explodes. Is this portrayed on screen? The worst thing is that I think some of them are just mentioned in passing in order for them to get up a tally of about 15 different urban legends that they've referenced. I like the sort of commitment to the theme here. It's it's got a brilliant artistic coherence. The theme was strong and it's possible that this film did give rise to the fantastic Final Destination series which had even less of a plot but was far better. So is this film particularly gruesome in its execution or is it just the gimmick that made it stand out for you? I remember I saw it at the cinema and I remember quite a few hangings and quite a few axings. Oh and the fantastic very 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 chilling urban legend about the thing that American teenagers do where they drive along in the dark with their lights off. And the first person to flash you on the other side to mm. tell you that you're, you haven't got your lights on, you turn the car around, you chase them, and you run them off the road. Amazing. Well, happy 19th anniversary to Urban Legend. You've been listening to The Back Half, the new culture podcast from The New Statesman with Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman. And playing you out with a bit of Far East prog rock, this is Godspeed by Pistol Jazz. <laughs>